Hello and welcome to the Triage Method Podcast with me, Gary McGowan, and my co-host, as always, Mr. Patrick Farrell. Paddy, how are you this week? I'm positively splendid, Gary. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. This week we're talking about supplements once again, continuing the supplement series, and this week we're going to be talking about supplements that relate to um, fat loss. And this is obviously a popular area of supplementation. Um, I think maybe slightly less so among the mainstream fitness industry in recent years. I think, uh, you know, there's been a bit, a little bit of cop on in terms of some of the supplements being pushed to the side. However, peripherally, you will still see quite a lot of supplements that are recommended for fat loss, many of which do very little and some of which might actually play a role. So at the end of this podcast, you should have a solid understanding of what might be worth the investment or including within your routine and what maybe is not very useful. Yeah. And I I think you are right. Well, at least I kind of hope you're right in terms of, I think there is a bit more cop on, as you said, in regard to supplements for fat loss, like, you know, obviously people that are just new to the industry or potentially aren't even, I will say fitness industry adjacent, like the common average everyday person gets marketed fat loss supplements, you know? Um, But outside of that, once you're actually in this kind of health and fitness world, most people aren't pushing fat loss supplements. Like you don't really see people going like like maybe on instagram or whatever social media they're not really going oh these are the fat loss supplements you have to take whereas in like the the 90s the 2000s the 20 teens um like there was i feel a lot more marketing towards like these are the fat loss supplements oh this is a this is the supplement i take for fat loss you know like i feel like there was a lot more of that Whereas nowadays, I think people are more aware of like how to modify your diet for fat loss or how to modify potentially your training for fat loss rather than kind of hoping that these supplements just magically create fat loss. I think, and I want to say that that's the case. However, it may not be, you know, maybe that's just the bubble that we're in. Anyway, fat loss supplements Gary, are there actually any fat loss supplements that work? And I feel to adequately answer this question, we effectively need to do two things, right? First thing we need to do is do a little bit of a review of how fat loss actually occurs, like what's driving that, right? And then we need to basically discuss what vectors we'll say and um, fat loss supplements are potentially working through like what are the mechanisms or what are the potential mechanisms by which fat loss supplements and to a degree <clears throat> some of the uh fat loss medications we're not going to really touch on any of the medication well i say any we're going to touch on some just because it's relevant to the conversation um but we're not really going down the medication route. We might actually do a separate uh, podcast now that I'm thinking of it on just like medications for fat loss, because there is some in, in, can't even fucking speak interesting uh, new advances in that area. But anyway, we're talking about supplements here. Um, So Gary, how does fat loss actually occur? Like what's the, what's the process? What, what's the focus? What do we as individuals need to be thinking about when we think about, eliciting a fat loss adaptation um, and then how do supplements fit into that equation 
Yeah, this is a really important first step because even even when you're talking about drugs and medications, the first thing to try and understand is what mechanisms you're trying to target. So for example, if you had someone who has heart failure, let's say, so basically their heart isn't functioning very well anymore, you might ask yourself, okay, how, how does this disease work? What are the problems associated with this disease? And what are the mechanisms by which medications might improve uh, this disease? So for example, it might be, all right, one of the mechanisms we want to improve is how well the heart contracts. We might want to manage blood pressure. We might want to manage some of the complications of the disease, like related to heart attacks or these types of things. So fundamentally, what we're looking at is we're trying to understand the disease itself and then seeing what mechanisms we could potentially extrapolate. And it's very similar here when it comes to fat loss, because we start with an understanding of what contributes to fat loss. Okay, it starts with a basic understanding of energy balance or calories in, calories out. So in its most simplest form, in order to lose body fat, we need to burn more calories or expend more calories or energy than we take in through food. So that's the fundamental um, summary of a whole series of complex metabolic interactions that underlie uh, metabolism and energy balance. So that then leads us to understand or to, to question, okay, how could a supplement potentially modify uh, that equation or that um, energy balance. And there's kind of three things here, um, or maybe a couple of more, but the main things would be, could we increase energy expenditure? How would that work? Okay, it might be that we have more energy um, or more motivation for activity. Um, it might be that it increases our body heat. So the substrates that we're using for energy are being converted to heat to a greater extent than they're being converted to um, ATP or, or muscular energy. And therefore, th these things would lead to an increase in ener energy expenditure. So if we can take supplements that increase the amount of calories that we burn throughout the day, then that could increase fat loss. So that's one potent mechanism there. The others would be related to how many calories we're taking in in the first place. So for example, if we took supplements that would reduce the absorption of nutrients so that we're eating these foods, but we're not actually absorbing the nutrients, then that would reduce our caloric intake. Because despite the fact that they're going into our mouth, they're not going in through the lining of the gut. And therefore, um, it doesn't really count as such towards our caloric intake. And then we could also just reduce our appetite. So are there supplements that we could take to reduce our appetite or increase our satiety and therefore make it so that we're less likely to consume ex excess calories. So these are the primary mechanisms by which fat loss supplements might work. There are some other, you know, peripheral mechanisms, like for example, could we take supplements that are that increase the probability of releasing fat from certain cells and not others? Like that's a, a bit of a bit of a reach, but these are some of the proposed mechanisms. The main ones, reducing appetite, increasing energy expenditure, or reducing the absorption of nutrients. Yeah, and I think <clears throat> it's really important to just hammer that home. For fat loss to occur, we need to be paying respect to this calories in, calories out equation. And supplements fit into the equation by modifying either the calories in somehow or the calories out somehow. When we're looking at that calories inside of things, we've got a few different things that could potentially influence that. Like if you take supplements that reduce your appetite, Okay, that's going to modify your calories in. If you take supplements that 
increase your satiety. That's going to modify the calories in. Again, you would hope that both of those things lead to you consuming less food over time or you being able to stick to the diet more easily, right? Um, again, you have other, other supplements potentially that lead to a reduction of the absorption of those nutrients. Even though you ate the food, you don't actually get it into the body because your digestive system, said it before, is effectively outside your body, right? It's a tube that runs through your body. And just because you've eaten food, you've put it in your mouth and swallowed it into that tube, it doesn't mean that it's actually in your body. So there's potentially supplements and medications that reduce the absorption of those nutrients that are in that tube into your actual body, right? Um, mainly they're kind of medications. We, I'm just touching on it because it does inform the conversation, right? So that's the calories inside of things, right? We can also modify the calories outside of things potentially with supplements, right? And again, we can take supplements that increase our likelihood of doing more activity, you know, and we'll, we'll talk on like stimulants and different things in a second. Um, but if we move more, we're going to, you know, burn more calories throughout the day. So if we take supplements that help us move more, we're going to burn more calories, right? Um, so that's the calories out. Now we can also take supplements potentially or medications that increase body heat. So your like baseline metabolism. And a lot of these are to do with, we'll call it like energy wasting, you know, even though it's not necessarily wasted, like heat generation is a vital part of why we consume food. It's why we're able to live like humans are able to live all around the globe. We're able to modify our body temperature. Um, but anyway, you can take supplements that potentially increase your body. heat. Now, the thing about it is a lot of the supplements that are targeted at fat loss, they usually do some combination of all of those different things. They usually do some, you know, modification of calorie expenditure. They might do also some modification of uh, calorie intake by reducing appetite. So basically they're, they're hitting a few of these different vectors. And as a result, it makes it more likely that you will lose fat because you're either able to stick to the calories in calories out equation that leads you to be in a calorie deficit or it increases the magnitude by which you are in a calorie deficit, right? But, and I'm relaboring the point here, the key thing is it all comes back to that calories in, calories out equation. If you take any of the drugs, supplements, whatever, that are supposed to be fat loss drugs and you still consume more food, right? You still eat more calories than you expend. You won't lose fat. You will gain fat. If you were in a calorie surplus, you take every single fat loss supplement on the list, right? And you're still in a calorie surplus. You don't just magically lose fat, right? So there's nothing magical, nothing inherently magical, wonderful about these supplements. They just help you modify this calories in, calories out equation. And that's really important to understand because especially if you're newer to the industry, you're newer to the marketing of fat loss supplements, et cetera, you can almost think that there's just some sort of magical property to these supplements that it's like oh take this supplement and you're going to have magical fat loss you know but that's not really the case you take a supplement because it helps you stick to the diet or it helps elicit or it helps create i should say a bigger deficit that allows you to lose fat faster or at a more appropriate rate whatever right but again it all comes back to that calories in calories out equation and again I can't labor the point enough because I know and we, I know you've fallen for it, Gary. I know I've fallen for it at the start of your 
understanding of this stuff, you just think that these supplements have some sort of magical quality. Like, oh, that's a fat loss supplement. It just it just creates fat loss. And that's just not the case. Absolutely. And I think that one of the best ways to illustrate that is to ask ourselves, what but but what about these guys that are taking all these, you know, drugs, the super supplements? Even if you're looking at bodybuilders and you look at what they take from a supplementation perspective or a drugs perspective to potently increase their fat loss and get the best results and get super lean for for the bodybuilding stage all the drugs still pretty much act on these mechanisms that's it so for example some of the most common drugs that bodybuilders will use would be something like clenbuterol or other types of stimulant supplements or thyroid hormones and both of these fundamentally work by increasing your energy expenditure and to some extent modifying appetite as well but the main thing there really is that they're increasing energy expenditure and therefore modifying the calories in calories out relationship so even when you're looking at the extreme examples of bodybuilders who are willing to exploit any mechanism they can they're still fundamentally modifying calories in calories out at the end of the day so um we leave that aside for the moment but the key point there is that if you want to lose body fat, you have to try to exploit these mechanisms of increasing energy expenditure, reducing caloric intake. That's it. Okay. So don't get caught up with all the, the other fancy stuff. That's what matters at the end of the day. And, and just, to, just to kind of bounce off that, mm-hmm. there are loads of different mechanisms. There's loads of like, oh, this is a beta adrenergic stimulant. This is an alpha adrenergic. It's going to yeah. act on these fat cells differently than this. And like that stuff, yeah, it's cool. It's important. You know, and there's loads of different smaller nuances and mechanistic stuff that we can really dive into and i I like that stuff you know i like biochemistry i know gary i know you like that stuff as well but it's actually largely irrelevant for the conversation (laughs) because the actual like we we bring it all back it all comes back to modifying that calories in calories out equation you know while the mechanisms by which it modifies it yeah that's cool to explore what we really need to understand is we're just modifying that calories in calories out equation. And again, I know I'm laboring the point, but I just want to make that abundantly clear because while people think that supplements have some magical qualities, they definitely think that medications think, or that medications have magical qualities in terms of all oh, like that those bodybuilders are taking X supplement and they're also taking X or sorry, Y drug. And it's the Y drug. That's like, it just strips fat off you. It just it just destroys fat. It just burns it off your body. But you have to ask yourself, like, how is it doing that? Is it increasing energy expenditure? Is it increasing or sorry, decreasing energy intake? Or is it allowing them to stick to their diet better or to stick to their training better or to train harder or to whatever, right? But ultimately, it's still coming back to that calories in, calories out equation. And if you really, really get that into your head, it makes you understand that, oh, I can just modify the calories in calories out equation. I don't need to use money or to spend money to buy any of these supplements, these drugs. They might, the supplements or drugs or whatever might modify your timeline or they might potentially make things a little bit easier. For example, if you're on whatever stimulant, right? It might be easier to stick to your diet because your appetite is a little bit lower and you're also just burning a hundred extra calories per day. So you only have to feel like you're eating, let's just say 200 less calories, but you're actually in a 300 calorie deficit and you're also not as hungry. So it's easier to stick to that. But ultimately you could just 
eat in a 300 calorie deficit and change your food selection maybe so that it's more satiating like eat a load of vegetables for example and you're like okay now it's easier to stick to my diet <laughs> you know so again we're thinking nutrition first and i think i've labored that point enough so hopefully i won't have to say it again <laughs> absolutely so that takes us into some of the supplement categories that are important when it comes to fat loss so the first one is a very broad category of of stimulants and stimulants you know fundamentally what they're doing at least a lot of the time is acting on the sympathetic nervous system. So the sympathetic nervous system or adrenergic or adrenaline related signaling is where a lot of these supplements kind of come together. There are other peripheral effects. So for example, we can have um, dopaminergic signaling um, and other modulation of neurotransmitters, but really where this come, where these fit in is increasing the energy expenditure side of things to the greatest extent with some effects as well on appetite regulation. So the, the most obvious one here would be something like caffeine. So caffeine does support fat loss. And the primary mechanism really that's important here would be increasing energy expenditure and also the modulation or the, the um, uh, reduction of appetite or control of appetite. And the reason I say control of appetite is because there's a there's there are mechanisms that would reduce appetite in the first place through caffeine but there's also a very strong behavioral component here and i think that's really important because when people take caffeine what do they do they very often take um or drink coffee or something like that and the flavor of coffee the liquid etc by consuming that it can almost um feel like a meal of sorts so if you're having cravings let's say and you have a cup of coffee okay that's taken care of now so there's a behavioral or a psychological element that goes alongside the mechanisms that are at play here um and there's also another thing related to that which would be you know sometimes if you're feeling a little bit low on energy you might feel like you need to eat and if you have a cup of coffee now you have a bit more energy and maybe now you're not going to eat what you were going to eat um before so there's a, a few different things that come together here but all of them do center on um, a reduction of appetite or i guess uh, the management of of hunger cues and everything on that side of the spectrum that might reduce your intake and then also an increase in energy expenditure by stimulating you to move more to have more energy to put more effort into your workouts etc so that could be even something as simple as you know if you didn't have your morning coffee you might feel a bit sluggish you might be slightly lazier it might even just be subconscious but you you mightn't want to go and do the laundry right now let's say whereas if you've had that extra cup of coffee now you're around the house doing all the jobs okay so all of that contributes to an increase in energy expenditure and what you'll see here as well is that if you look into the research on caffeine and coffee, you'll see a lot of, you know, mechanistic research about its effects on lipolysis, for example, you know, which basically means the it's part of the process of breaking down body fat. So if we can release more fat from the fat cells, then wouldn't that be good for fat loss? And that's part of the picture here for sure. Um, and we see this in terms of um, for example, having coffee before exercise, it can modify things like fat metabolism. But these, these kind of small variables of how it might release fat cells or not, or how, how fat gets released from fat cells or not, kind of irrelevant unless we're modifying the overall uh, energy um, balance equation. Uh, so don't get lost in that stuff. The main things we're looking at here are, can caffeine help you to reduce your energy intake or can caffeine help you to increase your energy output? And for the most part, the answer to that would seem to be yes. 
Yeah, and I really, again, I, I said I wouldn't labor it again, but I'm going to. Uh, like, we can really, especially with caffeine, we can go, oh, there's this actual mechanism here for lipolysis. This is actually a really powerful, like, lipolytic drug. Um, like, it's releasing fat from the fat cells. So that's obviously great for fat loss. But if you are, you know, in a surplus, yeah, it might release some fat from the fat cells, but your body's like, well, we're just going to store these again somewhere else because... We are in a surplus of energy. We don't need to use this, right? So again, it comes back to the calories in, calories out stuff, right? And I think, especially with caffeine, people don't actually realize just how potent a fat loss stimulant it is, right? Like it's a potent stimulant, first of all. Now, I know a lot of people do necessarily or do think that they go, oh yeah, like I I find I'm really stimulated if I take coffee, especially if you're uh, not a habitual coffee drinker. Like you have a coffee, you have some people that are like, yeah, I'm wired for three days after that, right? Now, a lot of people have more, we'll say, normal metabolism of caffeine, and they fall in that kind of like six to nine hours of stimulation from it or some stimulation from it, right? Um, So people are aware that it's stimulating, but I don't think a lot of people are aware that when they drink their morning coffee, they're actually taking something that is really powerful, really helpful in a fat loss context. And you really start to realize this when you look at any people that do stuff like intermittent fasting, or well, it's realistically, it should be called time-restricted feeding. They'll be like, right, I eat in the later half of the day, I have my first meal at one o'clock, let's say, and I have my last meal at 9 p.m., whatever, right? Um, So with with them, almost every single one of them is like, oh yeah, like I have a cup of coffee in the morning, it really blunts my appetite. It really, you know, allows me to stay feeling fuller for longer and allows me to push off that first meal until the middle of the day, you know? And you really start to realize you're like, fuck, actually, this is a really powerful appetite suppressant. It's also a really powerful uh, energy mobilizer, we'll say, because again, it's releasing that fat, fat from the fat cells, which means it's ready for, you know, use. Um, you really start to realize that this is actually really potent for fat loss. And people are still just like, oh yeah, I just drink my morning coffee and I'm going to take other stimulants. I'm going to take other things for fat loss. So if you're, I, and, and the reason I'm saying this is because you need to kind of take the totality of your diet into account. Like you're probably burning an extra, let's just, let's just put it out a figure of a hundred extra calories per day because of your two cups of coffee. Right. We'll just, we'll just put it at that. Right. It's like, oh, you're eating an, or you're burning an extra hundred calories because you're fidgeting a bit more because of caffeine, etc. And maybe you've a hundred calories of hunger blunting from caffeine as well. We'll just say, right? Um, so you're basically giving an extra two hundred calories <laughs> just because you drink two cups of coffee a day or even a cup of coffee per day, right? That's obviously really helpful on a fat loss diet, like surprisingly helpful 200 calories is actually quite a lot right um and again the reason i'm saying this is because people will be hammering their two coffees a day and then they're like well oh, what other fat loss supplements can i take what other stimulants can i take when you're already on one of the most beneficial one of the most powerful ones that we have legally available to us yeah and and this to be fair one of the difficult things about it is that um the less the less you consume it the more potent it's going to be, um, which is a bit of a paradox because 
if you want to maximize your fat loss, you're like, oh, well, I'll take more of it. But uh, unfortunately, one of the things you do observe is that even when it comes to things like the increase in heart rate or increase in blood pressure in response to caffeine, the more you consume it, the more that effect is blunted. So for example, the first time you have a cup of coffee, if you're quite sensitive to it, you might see your resting heart rate go from 50 to 60, 65 plus. You know, I've just had two coffees there this morning and my resting heart rate at the moment is 47, you know, and I'm on a podcast talking, so I'm probably up a little bit already. So for me, caffeine literally does not change my resting heart rate. Um, Maybe a couple of beats, but pretty much nothing. Whereas if you're someone that's really sensitive and you're getting 10 to 15 extra beats, like that adds up. Those those beats of your heart don't occur in the absence of energy. They require energy and they're reflective of your overall metabolic state, you could say. So um, yeah, if you're the person that's really jittery after caffeine, you're super hyper and you feel super energetic, well, you're burning more extra calories in response to that. I still find that I get the um, the appetite blunting or the, the hunger management, we'll say, uh, benefits of, of caffeine. I don't find them to be modified as such by how habituated I am. Um, and I think a lot of that is to do with the behavioral or psychological components that I've mentioned. So for example, when I got up this morning, I have my coffee and, and I, di- I didn't have breakfast. And, you know, I'm going to be training after this at uh, 10.30 or 11, which will take me to one or two o'clock by the time I'm home. So I'll be having my first meal then. And the, it was the coffee or the caffeine that really, you know, carried me over during the morning. So I think that those behavioral or psychological elements can't be, you know, understated there. It's really important. Um, so can't be understated, can't be overstated. Either way. Can't be. Yeah, we'll go with that anyway. Um, but yeah, that's that's caffeine pretty much. I don't think there's too much else to be said on that. There are other caffeine adjacent kind of ingredients that that you'll see. Sometimes, you know, you'll see um, various caffeine salts, caffeine dimalase, different types of caffeine that are marketed to be of a different bioavailability or release speed, etc., just have caffeine in, in, in its normal form, caffeine and hydrous if you're supplementing or caffeine through coffee, etc. Doesn't matter. Don't worry about that. A lot of them are just kind of marketing, trying to make them sound special. Um, so yeah, that's caffeine. A lot of them are, they're like, oh, there's no uh, drop off in energy because of this. They're like, we have this special form. So you don't get a, you know, what, what do they call it? A crash, right? They're like, oh, you don't get a crash of energy. The reason most of them work is because they actually just drip feed the caffeine out for longer. So yeah. You just have the caffeine in your system for longer. So there's no crash because you're still taking the drug effectively. Yeah. <laughs> um, again, that might be what you want. You know, if you have an all day event, you're like, I just want to be on point. Cool. You know, but maybe that's not the best if you're taking your caffeine later in the day and you're <laughs> still up at 4 a.m. the next morning, you know. But anyway, um, caffeine is obviously one of the goats when it comes to uh, fat loss supplements. But there are other ones, Gary. What are some of the other ones? Yeah, so the, some of these are, are very much related. For example, uh, green tea is another one that's marketed heavily when it comes to fat loss. I remember early on in in my fitness days, as soon as I'd be trying to lose fat, I'd be slamming green tea. I'd be having it with different meals and stuff. It's actually all right. I liked it at the time. Um, I haven't had green tea in a while now, but uh, yeah, not bad. And 
caffeine is obviously very much related to this, but there are other ingredients in green tea that might lend themselves to improving fat loss. But I, I, I wouldn't say I'm that hyped about them, really. I think, you know, if you like green tea, you know, fire away, be my guest. Um, just drink it like you would your coffee. But I, I wouldn't be particularly enthusiastic about, you know, supplementing with green tea extracts and these types of things. I, I don't think there's there's much there in terms of wins that you couldn't be getting by just having your caffeine or coffee. So I'm not sure about you, but, you know, green tea, not a regular recommendation, I would say. No. And again, it's basically coming back to that calories in, calories out equation. It's doing the exact same thing as coffee, maybe to a lesser extent. It's blunting appetite or it's stimulating you a bit more so you move more now there are mechanistic things you'd be like oh well it actually does this particular thing to this particular pathway that might be relevant for fat loss like maybe it interacts with the you know uh, ampk uh, kinase pathway uh, but again that mechanistic stuff while it's cool really enjoyable great science etc it's not actually the stuff that's working the stuff that's working is are we modifying calories and calories out? So if you take green tea, it makes you a little bit more energetic, you move more, or it makes you stick to your diet a little bit better, uh, or potentially make you hyper stick to your diet, i.e. you eat even less <laughs> than you intended to, then obviously that's going to help with fat loss, right? But there's no magical, oh, oh this, this property, right? Which kind of brings us to the next one, which Definitely. Well, I actually think it's illegal right now in most countries in the Western world. I know you can get it in some countries, even in Europe, um, but it's ephedrine, right? This was, you know, Gary, when we were coming up, this was the supplement. Yeah. This, this was the fat loss supplement. You have the ephedrine, caffeine, and potentially also aspirin stack. So the ECA stack, right? Um, that fat loss, so easy, right? Um, but while there is mechanism or mechanisms by which this potentially is a beneficial supplement, a beneficial supplement that is actually synergistic with caffeine. Ultimately, again, it just comes back to the same things. It's like, all right, this, this is a stimulant that makes you less hungry, makes your appetite lower and also makes you move more. It also makes you just expend more energy, even though you're in a deficit where other people, if they weren't on a supplement like this in a deficit, they would spontaneously move less, right? So there's no inherent like, oh, this is this is a magical interaction with this pathway. It does some cool things. Don't get me wrong. Again, it's that beta adrenergic stimulant. It's a bronchiodilator. It does a whole host of different things, which again, potentially beneficial for fat loss at a mechanistic level. But you could take that and not lose fat if you didn't respect the calories in calories out equation, right? So while it's cool and there are, there are, I think, uh, legal, uh, alternatives will say, uh, such as synephrine, like there's different, like, uh, either related compounds or somewhat metabolites of, of ephedrine. Um, and they're still available in various forms. Um, but again, it's just coming back to that same thing. They just, keep you feeling fuller for a little bit longer and they make you move more. There's no magical quality to them. There might be some magical quality to what's well, I say magical. It's not actually magical, but some like extra quality to the next one that we're going to talk about. Um, but Gary, do you have anything to say about ephedrine or synephrine or any of those? No, no. 
again, it's just a stimulant. It's not doing anything magical. Now, the next one we want to talk about is Yohimbine. Now, there's a few, again, different metabolites and different things um, that potentially could be substituted in, in, in for this. Like there's one called uh, Rowelcine or something like that, which seems to be a little bit more potent with less side effects. Um, but again, we won't get into all of the different uh, subcategories of it, I suppose. Um, but Yohimbine, right? Again, it's a stimulant. It does all the same thing that caffeine does. It does all the same stuff in terms of modifying our calories in. It makes you feel a little bit hung or a little bit less hungry. It makes you move a little bit more. It also makes you just like, you know, sweat a little bit more, produce heat, loss to the environment, et cetera, right? So same stuff that caffeine is doing, green tea is doing, ephedrine is doing. However, with Yohimbine, it does work on, we'll say the alpha adrenergic pathway. Now this is, Again, very mechanistic stuff. And I've been saying, and we've been reiterating the point that the mechanistic stuff is largely <laughs> actually irrelevant to the conversation because the fat loss is occurring by virtue of the calories in, calories out equation, right? But people really like Yohimbine, even though in some people it actually does cause like anxiety and like psychological issues. Like it's actually really interesting because you'll often see in, uh, like uh, neuroscience papers, they'll use Yohimbine as a kind of a reference drug for a variety of different things because it actually does a lot to neurons, brain cells, different areas of the brain, et cetera, right? Um, but because it works on that alpha-adrenergic pathway, it's actually stimulating fat loss in certain areas of the body that might be harder to lose fat on. And this is especially more relevant to, say, bodybuilders who are looking to really lose the last like one to two percent of body fat they're like my lower abs they don't seem to be losing fat as much as i want i want to kind of just prioritize that and while we often talk about oh you can't spot reduce fat like you can to some extent influence that certain parts of the body have more of an expression of this like beta receptor we'll just say but we'll put it like that and um, whereas other parts of the body have more of an expression of this alpha receptor again simplifying it just to make it more easily understandable but that's how we'll we'll, we'll play it right um, and we don't really stimulate this alpha receptor again this is not the actual way i'm oversimplifying it it's kind of making me angry but <laughs> uh, we're, we're going to simplify it because it makes it easier so we don't generally stimulate this alpha receptor when we're just doing our normal stuff you know when we're dieting etc so you have areas of the body that don't lose fat as easily now you will still lose fat from those areas and as long as you stay in a deficit for long enough you will eventually mobilize the fat from those areas right however we can somewhat prioritize those areas by taking something like yohimba right however this really only applies to people that are trying to lose that very last little bit like if you are 20 kilos overweight and you take your hemline, it's not going to just prioritize all oh, lower ab fat. Yeah, you might get a little bit extra stimulation there, but it's actually going to be unnoticeable, not noticeable in the slightest. And you've just exposed yourself to uh, a supplement that potentially gives you anxiety, gives you all these other side effects where you just didn't need it, right? So while there is some, again, I'm calling it a magical quality in terms of it might help you target certain areas of the body, it really only matters for someone that's a bodybuilder looking to get like stage lean, you know, you're like, Oh, well I have just the last little bit of fat on my glutes and um, maybe some yoga might help. Right. What are your thoughts there, Gary? 
Yeah, I think, again, you know, I think if you're a bodybuilder and you're trying to get extremely lean, more than 99.9% of the population, then pulling on these levers makes sense. For anyone else, it's uh, pretty much a waste of your time. You what you definitely want to be single-digit body fat before you're going to be worrying about this um, because fundamentally what we're trying to do when someone is extremely lean is to maximize fat loss while while also maximizing muscle retention. So anything that we can do to liberate more fat cells uh, or more fat from the fat cells that we're trying to get rid of or shrink, I should say, um, is going to be in our favor. So even if this was a, you know, a, a 1% greater increase in fat liberation from lower abdominal body fat, that's actually worth it when you're already five or 6% body fat and you're talking about very uh, minute changes. Uh, however, this is going to be entirely unnoticeable for the vast majority of people, even, even me at the moment, right? Like I, I have slightly visible abs, you know, but I don't have veins on my abs. I'm not absolutely shredded. This would make no difference for me. You know, it might make some difference to maybe appetite management or stimulants as per this broader discussion, but from a spot reduction uh, perspective, very unlikely to have any meaningful effect and not something I take um, for that reason. Yeah, 100%. What other stimulants, Gary? What else is in yeah. this? So the final one is is clenbuterol. And, and this kind of falls into a broader car- category. You know, clenbuterol is actually similar to the, the blue inhaler that a lot of you take, which is salbutamol. And if you're an asthmatic, you know, there's also albuterol and various other um, alls or arals, you know, salmeterol, et cetera, that fit into this drug category. And these act again on, various adrenergic receptors, the primary one here being beta-2, so they're beta-2 agonists. Um, so the, the the big effect that they're going to have here is acting on, you know, the lungs from a pharmacology perspective, as in like, why would these be used in medicine? Largely because they're bronchodilators. So if you're asthmatic, you have bronchoconstriction, and if you dilate that, it opens up your airways, and now you're able to breathe clearer. Um, but as many asthmatics will know, if they take a very high dose of their inhaler, they might find themselves getting you know, tachycardic. So their heart rate is increasing. They might feel their heart racing, generally feel a bit more hypermetabolic. And that's exactly what happens here with something like clenbuterol. So you end up with an effect where you're being, you're being stimulated. Um, there, there are some effects on the level of the muscle as well, which is interesting. Um, so, you know, if you have uh, adrenaline, you have, you do have adrenergic receptors on your muscles as well. And this could potentially have an effect on performance you might say that it was that is separate to fat loss itself but overall that the main effect here with something like clenbuterol and other beta adrenergic agonists would be to uh, increase energy expenditure and this is why when people when bodybuilders take clenbuterol what they'll often report is that they're wide awake at night they're wired you know they're sweating all the time they're jittery and that's generally a hypermetabolic state people will also get anxiety similar to what you said about yohimbine and that's the case for all these stimulants. When you take a lot of stimulants, you get more anxious because that's a reflection of this kind of hypermetabolic, hyperstimulated state. Um, you know, on the on the basic physical level that you can observe, it might be physical jitteriness and sweating. But on the psychological level, then that's your mind racing, you know, racing through all your thoughts. So all of these fit into this one category of stimulants 
that are going to lead to a hyperstimulated state, a hypermetabolic state that can increase energy expenditure with also peripheral effects then. Um, and I shouldn't say peripheral because I mean, I don't mean peripheral in terms of the nervous system. I just mean related side effects that might also manage your appetite. So that's, that's stimulants really. Yeah. So that's the broader class of stimulants. There are other ones. There are loads of different avenues that we could go down with this, but I think people get the idea. Stimulants are basically all working by making your appetite go down. So you're, you're just less hungry. So you're able to either stick to your diet or you're able to just induce a deficit by virtue of not eating, right? They also work by increasing your energy expenditure because you either move more because you have a little bit more energy, you're not as, you don't feel as tired or they make you do stuff like you're, you're more jittery. You're like on edge. You're like just moving around buzzing basically. Right. Um, so they're modifying the calories in calories out equation. Cool. That's stimulants. What next Gary? Yeah. Next is a uh, body heat. You could say, um, something very mild here could be something like, uh, capsaicin for example you'll see that in some some supplements um you know pr- probably has some effect can have effects on your appetite can have effects on increasing your body temperature but the real kind of heavy hitter here would be something like dinitrophenol which is dnp and dnp is a a drug that is still actually used by um, bodybuilders i know bodybuilders who take dnp and and the interesting reports but the mechanism here is actually quite interesting and it relates to something that's referred to as uncoupling so normally in your muscles or in your cells generally when you're creating um energy or you're converting energy substrates to uh, atp what what you'll have in a very efficient metabolic state is that you're taking the, let's say that your carbohydrate molecule has 12 AT or the carbohydrate intake has 30 ATP that you could get out. Okay. Let's just keep it as a whole number. If that's 30 ATP worth of carbohydrate and you get 30 ATP out, that system is hundred percent efficient. If you have a third, if you have 30 ATP worth of carbohydrate and that only gives you 15 ATP out the other end, then there's 15 ATP worth of energy that has been wasted somehow. And this is, this is entirely normal in metabolism. It can't, it's not a hundred, it's not a hundred percent efficient uh, system. Um, um, you don't want it to be hundred. No, you don't want that at all. <laughs> you don't want it to be hundred percent efficient. You want to have, like, if you were hundred percent efficient, just think about this logically, if you're hundred percent efficient, your body would be ice cold. Right? Yep, ice cold. You would have no, extra heat loss you have no heat loss to the environment right so we do want some that allows us to keep our body temperature at that kind of you know whatever it is how, how what's body temperature i want to say 35 degrees 37 whatever yeah 30 36.5 37.5 um so it allows us to keep our body temperature there now what's really interesting about this is there actually are potentially differences in terms of uh, ethnicities like if you come from uh, a population or a, a peoples i should say that you know we're always around the equator right you potentially have a more efficient, I should say, yeah, more efficient uh, system because you haven't had to generate as much body heat. Like you have evolved, your systems have evolved in a an area where it's just always warm, right? Whereas if you have always been from like, I don't know, as far north as possible, that's where your people uh, evolved, et cetera. I shouldn't say they didn't evolve there, but you know, you know what I mean when I'm saying that, like the colloquial understanding of evolved, right? Um that's where they've been you potentially have a less efficient system because you want 
to produce more body heat. You want to lose more body heat to the surrounding area because it keeps you warmer, right? So that's just an interesting aside. But anyway, go on. Yeah, and, and that's, that is an important point because like basically what we're talking here is that there's a natural loss of efficiency within the system or a natural inefficiency. And it's this efficiency or energy leak that enables us to maintain our body heat. Okay. We are endotherms. We don't just, you know, depend on the environment for our heat. We also create our own. And that is a result of inefficiency within metabolic systems. So let's say normally, um, and just to keep the whole numbers, you, you take in 30 ATP uh, worth of energy substrate and you get um uh, 20 out in a state of health let's say okay uh 10 atp worth is contributing to things like the maintenance of your body heat and then you take a drug that reduces that so that you're only getting 10 atp worth of atp um uh, or 10 you're only getting 10 atp out of 30 atp worth of carbohydrate now you've got this extra loss of uh, energy that's being lost um, and therefore your overall uh, metabolic rate would be increasing. So your caloric expenditure is increasing, meaning that you'd be able to eat more calories, but because the ATP itself, which is what's going to be leading to something like body fat gain, um, because that's not coming out the other side, now you're in a position where uh, you're going to have, uh, let's say, a 20 or 33% increase in your metabolic rate as a result of that. And the way that this works is through something called uncoupling so if you have a perfect but the way i always think it because again i'm an idiot and it really helps me visualize these things in metaphors right like the way this like your mitochondria is working so all that was gary was saying there was you basically eat food and if we think about this like a water like a hydropower plant right basically you eat food that's putting water into the tank up top right and what you're doing with that water is using it to drive a, a turbine this actually atpas right it's like a, a kind of a pump right so that's what they do they'll put a dam on a gorge or whatever let a load of water fill up behind it and then when they want to cr- produce energy they'll open up the turbines and the water coming through spins the turbines you get energy at the other side right so that's basically the same way that your mitochondria are working you eat food it goes through the electron transport chain and you're basically putting these hydrogens in the tank right you're filling up the tank and then what those hydrogens are doing down the line is they're going through this atpas and they're being used to create atp right they're using they're being used to power this pump right we'll think of it like that now it's not perfectly like that but that's how we'll think of it right now there is normal some loss of those hydrogens up top right you've pumped them up they're in the dam there's some leakage there's some oh it goes off this little side stream over here and you know, it doesn't get used for energy production, right? Now, what can happen in such stuff like Gary's about to explain here with proton uncoupling, um, you can basically get those side streams to be more, to take more effectively. So Gary, go on. I'm going to come back to this analogy here in a second, but I'm just setting it up. <laughs> yeah, that's basically it. So, So fundamentally what you need is you actually need a gradient. So you need a proton or hydrogen gradient for the ATPase, which is what creates ATP from these energy substrates right at the end of the metabolic pathways, you need a, a gradient that's there. So what ends up happening is fundamentally, we get these uncoupling proteins, which, which lead to greater uncoupling. So we get more leakage of these hydrogen ions. And therefore, fundamentally, we get an increase in heat generation that's occurring, making the system less efficient. So if you're thinking about perfect efficiency, as we said, 
you you eat carbohydrates, you eat fats, etc., and you get the perfect 30 ATP out the other end. If it's normally 20 ATP um, that you're actually getting out the other end because of the natural inefficiencies, and you take something like this drug, which increases the uncoupling, you might now only get 10 ATP out the other side. And that's because you're losing more of these hydrogens. Um, and you're, you're creating less energy as a result. You're making a more inefficient metabolic system. And therefore, if you wanted to satisfy your energy needs, for example, let's say this is totally wrong, but if you needed 2000 ATP worth of energy per day, you now need to consume um, 33% more calories throughout the day to actually supply that ATP. So fundamentally, what we're talking about is making the system less efficient so that we create more heat, waste more energy, and therefore burn more calories. Yeah. So again, going back to that analogy, you now have a system that you eat food, you pump up all these hydrogens, and you're like, okay, cool. The tank is full. I've put in enough to make the tank full, right? And then you turn on the tap or you turn on the, the turbines, and then you go, hold on a second, we're only 80% of the way where we should be. I thought we had a full tank, but the tank's only at 80%. What happened there? Effectively, we've diverted some of that water in the tank up the top, behind the dam, whatever way you want to think of it. We've diverted it somewhere else. There's water loss. There's a leakage somewhere that's been put out elsewhere, right? And that's what stuff like DMP does. Now, you might go, fuck, actually, this sounds phenomenal. This is this is clearly the best way forward. I basically just have an inefficient energy production system that allows me to eat the same amount of food and still lose weight, right? And we've talked about it before, or we just mentioned it before, you lose heat to the environment, right? That's what this proton leakage does. It's not all it does, and it's not perfectly analogous here, but you lose heat to the environment. Gary, is there a potential problem with... a uh, losing some of this water in the tank if that water loss also generates heat yeah it's definitely not good do not want okay so there this can kill you you know <laughs> if you're just you're basically you're technically in a way you're setting yourself on fire <laughs> you know, like that's basically what you're doing if you let this go totally uncontrolled and you create a ton of heat your body's going to overheat and you're going to die okay so that that actually literally does happen and like the the problem is and well this is a it's a good thing but our body is is designed in such a way that it's it's it, we require very small margins so for your enzymes to work appropriately they need to be kept within a certain temperature range they need a certain ph etc and if we if our pH increases too much or decreases too much, temperature increases too much, decreases too much. These enzymes no longer work. Your cells can't work properly. And, and then we run into various problems such as death at the extreme. And this can occur here. If you take too much DNP and you let uncoupling just go crazy, then suddenly we need to, or suddenly we're getting all of this heat production as a result of these metabolic uh, events. And that is really not good. So you end up being hyperthermic. And as a result, you can actually die from that. So don't necessarily recommend that. The other thing that's important here, I suppose, that just goes to back to what Pat... Like, there's no way to stop this once it's happened. And yep. we don't have something that's a proton coupler. No. <laughs> you know, we don't have a way to keep these in once it's in the system. And you might go, oh, well, I'll just put you in like a, an ice bath or something so that, you know, your body temperature goes down. But that's like saying like, oh, I'm just going to shove a load of ice in my oven while it's on. And hopefully that'll 
cool it down. Like, yeah, it's going to cool it down or it's going to require a longer cooking time because, you know, it doesn't get up to the heat temperature that it could get up to. But it's not turning your oven off, <laughs> you know? So you could die from this. We do not recommend. Yeah, so don't try this at home, kids. Um, and the other thing is that, you know, these uncoupling proteins that we're talking about that exist within the mitochondrial membrane, they are also modified by other stressors. I talked about this in an email a few weeks ago for those on the newsletter. If you're not on the newsletter, make sure you're subscribed. But I talked a bit about cold stress, for example. So Patty was talking about people in different environments. And if you if you're if you were exposed to prolonged cold exposure, you get an increase in what's referred to as brown adipose tissue. So brown adipose tissue naturally has more of these uncoupling proteins. And therefore, um, if you have high brown adipose tissue activity, which occurs in response to cold exposure, you actually get more uncoupling because you need more heat generation that's taking place. Now, as discussed in that email, probably not, uh, it's probably not enough of an effect from you doing your 15 minutes of an ice bath in the morning. It's probably not you know, that significant, but you know, if you're, if you were out in the cold all the time and you worked in a freezing cold environment, you would actually have this increase in brown adipose tissue that is increasing your metabolic rate to some extent, but it's primary purpose there is to increase body heat generation. So fundamentally these are endogenous, normal physiological systems, normal efficiencies are inefficiencies that are built into the system. And when we take DNP or a drug like it, we're trying to exploit that. But of course, as a result, there are there can be very significant risks. This happened, I think, in the in the 1930s initially, I believe, when DMP was used as kind of a weight loss drug. It was thought that, oh, this seems like a great idea. People died. Uh, so just just, you know, if you can just get into a calorie deficit without using this, that'd be fantastic. I'm pretty sure DMP was a byproduct of the TNT industry. Yes. Um, and they basically noticed that the people that were handling this stuff were just losing weight like crazy. Uh, <laughs> and then they marketed, sold it from these like mail order magazines. <laughs> they just ordered effectively online. They didn't have the internet, but who was wild just fucking taking these things. But anyway, um, it is also interesting when you say with the like brown adipose tissue, like we have brown adipose tissue, well, especially babies and different things have brown adipose tissue. You can get it from cold exposure. But the reason it's brown is just because you have more mitochondria in yeah. that tissue. You know, there are other uh, tissues like fat tissues, like beige adipose tissue. So it has mm -hmm. some mitochondria in it, whereas brown adipose tissue has a lot of mitochondria. We could just do something like aerobic exercise and get more, first of all, calorie burning there and then from doing the aerobic exercise and an increase in mitochondria in like your muscle cells, et cetera, um, and get more fat loss as a result of that, rather than like thinking, oh, I'm my three minute ice bath is what's going to really influence me to uh, get some brown adipose or browning of my adipose tissue. And hopefully that's going to result in some extra fat loss. You just get more mitochondria by doing some aerobic exercise excuse me, you get some more mitochondria by just doing more aerobic exercise. And as a result of that, you, you get basically the exact same effects. Now it's not the exact analogous stuff, but I would argue that there's far more benefits to being aerobically fit than <laughs> cold adapted. <laughs> yeah, definitely pro exercise. Get on it. So anyway, Gary, 
the last one, there are other things that we're not going to touch on in, in this episode. Um, but the last one, cause I wanted to bring in something that influences the calories in side of things a, a bit more is like appetite suppressants. Now the thing is most of these stimulants, not necessarily DMP, although some people get really high anxiety and different things from it. And they also generate a lot of body heat. So they don't necessarily want to eat because there's a thermic effect of feeding as well. So you get even warmer and you're like, Oh, I'm just done. Um, but appetite suppressants. Um, what's the story there, Gary? Yeah, there's actually quite a, there are actually a lot of things that fit into this category. And I think what we'll do is discuss um, maybe this, some of the, the centrally acting and um, hormonal slash gut peptide components of this in the drugs episode. But the, the real one where we end up leveraging this um, is is probably fiber or fiber related compounds. So for example, if you're supplementing with fiber, like we know that that does help with um, appetite management. There's also, you know, probably some um, loss of calories to some extent um, as a result of an increase in, in fiber that can happen. Um, that, that can obviously be exacerbated if you're taking very, very, very high fiber doses and have explosive diarrhea, but we don't necessarily recommend that. Um, so fiber in general is something that like you want to be getting enough through your diet, but then if not, then you can also supplement with uh, fiber or various supplemental forms of fiber to reduce your energy intake. So that's something that definitely has a, a role. Um, along with that on the dietary side would be something like protein. So having enough protein in the diet um, or supplementing if you don't have enough through your food uh, is also going to help with appetite management. So we know that people are generally more satiated when they have a higher protein intake and also when they have a high fiber intake. So they're kind of the big levers really when it comes to appetite management. Um, as I said, there, there are various other uh, drugs slash supplements that fit into um, this category, especially those that relate to like dampening down appetite centrally within the brain, etc. And that's what we'll discuss in the uh, medical episode. Yeah, and on the appetite stuff, some of these appetite suppressants, we'll call them again, stimulants generally have an appetite suppressing effect for most people at least. Um, but some of these appetite suppressants, basically they're not really appetite suppressants, they're more satiety increasing agents, right? So you take some fiber in, like you feel fuller for longer. For example, if you're really struggling to stick to your calories and you're just like, these meals aren't satisfying me, one of the things you can do is just eat more vegetables at those meals. Now, the reason that works is because you eat more fiber, these vegetables are usually higher volume low calorie foods like you eat a lot of broccoli it's like you get five calories and it's like i've just eaten 200 grams of broccoli that's not the <laughs> equivalent but you get the idea right um so you eat foods that keep you feeling fuller for longer but you can also supplement to get this effect you can also take something like psyllium husk right you're like oh these meals are not satiating enough you could effectively just bring in a shake right you get some psyllium husk shake it up in a shake with water and drink that and all of a sudden you're like wow i actually feel fuller for longer right um and there's a variety of reasons why that happens you know fiber lowers or sorry reduces transit time sorry reduces digestion speed we should say increases transit time um and effectively just serves to keep you fuller for longer effectively serves to keep you with a more we'll say even drip of nutrients into the bloodstream so you're not getting these high swings ups and downs um which can all serve to keep you feeling fuller for longer and as a result of that 
you either eat less calories as a result or you're able to stick to the diet that you're supposed to be eating and not feel like, oh, I need to snack or I need to eat more here and there. Now, protein also does that to an extent. And again, this is why you'll see people saying, look, if you're on a fat loss diet, you really need to prioritize your protein at each of your meals. Don't just be like, oh, I need to hit whatever, 150 grams of protein. I'll eat that all at dinner. Like you want to spread that out throughout the day, first of all, from a muscle building, muscle retention perspective, but also that's going to keep you satiated. That's going to keep you feeling fuller for longer. And as a result, stick to your diet a lot easier, right? However, there are also components to both of these, like you mentioned, Gary, where they do actually potentially serve to uh, bind to other nutrients in the system. And you actually get a bit of a lowering of uh, nutrients actually getting into the body, right? For example, fiber might bind to other nutrients, whatever you've eaten, some proteins some carbs some fats, whatever. It'll definitely bind to some fats via like bile acid sequestration or whatever. Uh, but you then don't consume the calories. Like you've consumed them physically, I've eaten them, but you actually don't get them into the body and you basically poop them out without digesting them. Protein also does this to an extent, not necessarily just protein in its normal form, but if you ever eat stuff like uh, like charred you know, beef or whatever, you know, that, that kind of mallard reaction that happens that makes it really tasty on the outside, that polycyclic amines, like they effectively do bind to things in your gut and you don't digest them. Now, you might, you might break down the, the protein uh, peptide bonds and whatever else, um, but it's still potentially lowering the absorption of nutrients from the food that you've eaten, right? Protein itself also has a higher thermic effect of feeding in that to break down, to digest, to assimilate, to use that protein, you actually burn a few extra calories, right? And this is something that's quite interesting when you really first learn about it. Um, and then obviously it makes sense um, where you're like, okay, so protein has a bit of a higher thermic effect of feeding. So I could stay at 2000 calories. Let's say I have 2000 calories and I have 10% of that is protein right? If I eat those 2000 calories with 10% of protein, let's say I use 50 calories to digest that protein. If I then just kept that same 2000 calorie intake and increased my protein intake to let's say 30% or 40%, right? I might actually induce more of a deficit, even though I'm still eating the same calories because there's a higher thermic effect of feeding, meaning your body burns more energy to break down that protein. So you could end up in 100 calories, maybe 150 calorie deficit just by virtue of eating more protein, right? So again, it comes back to that calories in, calories out equation, but that it it can be a little bit confusing when you really parse out all the nuances of it because we often just think, oh, I eat food, that's the calories in. When in reality, we have to account for all the downstream things where it's like, okay, you at the food, but did it actually get into your system or did you eat it with a load of fiber, a load of other things that reduce the digestion of this food and you basically pooped it out? Or did your body have to work extra hard? Did it actually have to produce a load of, or sorry, use a load of energy to really break down, assimilate and use those nutrients, i.e. something like protein, for example, you might need to do that. And as a result, you're actually modifying the calories in calories out equation, right? Um, but anyway, that's, that's all I really have for the supplement side of things. Unless you want to say anything else, Gary, uh, wrap it up. No, that covers us for this week. So 
As always, guys, if you'd like to work with us and get to the essence of what's really important when it comes to your nutrition, training, etc., we do have coaching spaces available. You can put in your details in the description box below at the link below, and uh, we will be back to you with more information about the coaching process. We also put a lot of free information on our social media at Triage Method, also at our website, www.triagemethod.com, and of course, via our newsletter. So the Triage Method newsletter, you can subscribe to that below as well and get weekly emails with exclusive content that you won't see on our social media. Of course, if you like the podcast, we always appreciate when people share it, when they leave a rating and review, recommend it to friends, etc. And we do finally have a nutrition certification that you can partake in. If you want to learn more about you know, fat loss and most importantly, how to coach all of this, how to get results with clients, get more clients, get results, and get a great nutrition coaching business, then you can join the Triage Method Nutrition Certification. 100%. And we should say we have a payment plan available because I know a lot of people yes. did ask about that. They were like, oh, I don't have the money up front. We do now have a payment plan available in place. You can pay over six months, right? So go check it out. If that's something that appeals to you, sign up. Absolutely. And we'll see you next week, guys. Thank you very much.